Hello, and welcome to Gods and Movie Makers, otherwise known as Knights of the Round Table Reading, the show about how religion and the Bible shape the stories we tell on screen. I'm Joe Scales. And I'm Katie Turner. On this season, The Chosen One. Why were they chosen? Do they want to be chosen? And why are we so attracted to these sorts of stories? Joining us today to talk about The Green Knight is nobody. (laughs) So this episode is going to be slightly different from our previous ones. Here at Gods and Movie Makers, we usually like to talk with people who've done some thinking either about the specific film itself or who have some broader insight into aspects of the film's background, contextual setting, prominent religious themes, or something else that they have to offer our discussion. But in this episode, our final one of the season, Joe and I are going to chat about The Green Knight on our own and try and pull together a few threads that have emerged over our first season. But before we get into all that, we just want to thank all of our guests for their time and conversations and thank you, our listeners, for joining us in these discussions. We're also going to announce some plans for season two and hint at some further intermittent releases that will arrive periodically in your podcast feed while you wait for the next long running discussion. These intermittent releases will involve one-off films that don't fit with our planned themes, recent releases we just have to talk about, and some holiday tie-ins. If you have suggestions for films and or guests, then please tweet us at GodMovPod over on Twitter and let us know. You can also contact us via our website, godsandmoviemakers.com. So to kick us off, Joe, if you could be a chosen one, which chosen one would you be? Oh... That's a really tricky question, mm-hmm. uh, mainly because all the ones that come to mind, they seem to have a real rough deal of things. So take Frodo, for instance, very cool, gets to hang out with wonderful characters, see lots of very cool things, but his whole experience is emotionally and physically and mentally scarring for him to the point where he cannot go back into the world. And I think that's something which lots of our chosen ones seem to just have Whatever happens to them, whatever journey they undertake is so damaging and they have to lose everything. So Neo, for instance, who can kind of do anything, he has to then also have his entire reality stripped away from him and all his friends and family leave behind. The world he lives in outside the Matrix, like who would really want to live in that existence? It seems terrible. Yeah. If I have to choose, I think I will say Sarah Connor. Again, it's really devastating for her, but, you know, also get to be pretty cool, go off, be a survivalist, try and prevent the apocalypse. (laughs) What about you, Katie? Yeah, it's interesting to think about because thinking back on our first episode when we talked to Michelle about the Terminator, we were talking about how Chosen Ones, one of the reasons that they appeal to people is because they are this every man, every person sort of character. They are a normal person until they are selected for some special mission or some special task, undergoing some hero's journey. And so you can imagine yourself in that kind of position. You could say, what would I do if I was selected one day? But like thinking it through and thinking about each of the movies that we've done, I don't want to do any of their journeys. They're terrible. Mm, Yeah. So I think if I had to pick from one of the ones that we've done this season, I would pick Raya 
because she's a Disney princess, so she gets a happy ending. Mm -hmm. But she has to go through 10 years without her dad, with everybody around her slowly turning to stone, with no community. She has to relearn how to exist in society, how to interact with other people. Like, it sucks. Mm. (laughs) But what about our chosen one for today, Gawain in The Green Knight? Mm, Nah. I don't think so. His journey is particularly fraught with challenges and difficulties and none of it really goes that well. Yeah. So no, but let's talk about the Green Knight and get into the plot. Okay, let's do it. Friends. Brothers and sisters. Who can... Regale me and my queen with some myth. Or tale. Our film today is The Green Knight. It was released in 2021, written and directed by David Lowry. It's a genre-bending, visually stunning retelling of the 14th century poem Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. The film follows Sir Gawain, played by Dev Patel, nephew to King Arthur, and not yet a knight at the round table. On Christmas Day, the eponymous Green Knight enters Camelot and issues a challenge to the king and those gathered with him. The challenge is as follows... of kings indulge me in this friendly Christmas game let whichever of your knights is boldest of blood and wildest of hearts step forth take up arms and try with honor to land a blow against me whomsoever nicks me shall lay claim to this my arm its glory and riches shall be thine but champ must bind himself to this. Should he land a blow, then one year and yuletide hence, he must seek me out yonder, to the green chapel, six nights to the north. He shall find me there and bend a knee and let me strike him in return, be it a scratch on the check or a cut in the throat. I will return what was given to me, and then in trust and friendship we shall part. Who then? Who is willing to engage with me? In response, Gawain rises, and Arthur hands him Excalibur, his famous sword, and Gawain swiftly beheads the Green Knight. But the Green Knight then rises, picking up his decapitated head, and tells Gawain that he will meet him one year hence, and departs from the round table, cackling very evilly as he rides off into the wilderness. Pretty foreboding. The remainder of the film follows Gawain's journey to the Green Chapel, nearly a year later, to finish the ghoulish game. So both you and I pronounce Gawain, Gawain, Mm -hmm. but in the film, they pronounce it Gawain. Yes. And I think it could go either way. 
So we're going with what's natural to us. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Before going any further, it's probably worth briefly addressing the diverse cast that we see in this film. So in addition to Dev Patel, Sarita Chowdhury plays Gawain's mother. Erin Kellyman is St. Winifred. And this diversity in casting continues throughout the supporting roles and the background parts. As is often the case when non-white actors are cast in roles, stories, or historical settings where their presence is perceived in some way as inaccurate or inauthentic. There was a bit of pushback in some quarters to the casting in The Green Knight? Yeah, so we should address it. Leaving aside for the moment whether this story is in any way historically situated, which it's not, it's really important to stress that there have been people of color in Great Britain for at least 2,000 years. So even if it was historically situated, the diverse cast wouldn't give us that much of a problem. Roman military living in Britain originally came from many places that were part of the Roman Empire, including regions of Africa and what we now know as the Middle East, and this is attested in texts and inscriptions. During the medieval period, there was considerable cross-cultural contact with the Islamic world through trade, through war, and simply through travel. In fact, one of the Knights of the Round Table, Polemides, is sometimes referred to just as the Saracen, which is a sort of catch-all pejorative for Muslim people. In the early modern and modern era, Britain's colonialist expansion and its dominant role in the slave trade provided ample reason for people from Africa, Asia, and the Middle East and the Americas to find themselves in the UK either of their own volition or forced to be here. There is an excellent book and documentary series called Black and British by David Alashuga, which covers a lot of this, and we'll pop that onto our website along with a few other suggestions for learning more about Britain's multiracial history, and we'll also put an article or two on that discusses the role of the diverse cast in this story, what it's doing. Let's start with what you just mentioned, that the film isn't historically situated. So do you want to expand on what you mean by that? Two things. The first is that the film itself presents a really non-specific medievalish period. And this was intentional on the part of the filmmaker and the creative team. And I know that we both have thoughts on this and we can come back to it later in the discussion. And the second is that the legend of Arthur and all the stories that come with it that we might call Arthurian literature is just that. It's a legend. And it's been reimagined many, many times over. But the Arthur legend has a relatively specific time frame, right? Yeah, so if Arthur was a historical figure, then we would be imagining him living somewhere around the 6th century. Post-Roman withdrawal from Britain. Yes, so Roman Empire is still in existence, but Roman Britain is not... Not a thing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said that so eloquently. <laughs> so, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the text that provides the inspiration for this movie? Yeah, so it was really fun, actually, to do the reading and research for this. And it's probably worth starting with Arthur, who is a folkloric king, first attested to in a 9th century Welsh text, the Historia Britonum. There, Arthur is recorded as having fought 12 battles with the Saxons, fighting to keep them at bay. Arthur is a sort of folklore hero for the Britons, for the Welsh, in their partially mythical struggle against the Saxons. But it's not until the 12th century when Geoffrey of Monmouth writes of Arthur in his Historia Regem Britannae, the history of the kings of Britain, that we get many of the features of Arthurian legend that we're probably still familiar with, such as the idea that Arthur reigned in Camelot, ushering in a sort of golden age, and the popularized notion of Arthur as a historical figure. 
Stories circulated outside of Britain with versions produced in nearly all Western European vernacular languages in addition to Latin, and historians Ad Putter and Elizabeth Archibald attribute some of the success, the reproducibility of Arthurian narrative beyond what we see with other mythic or folkloric heroes such as Odysseus and Robin Hood, to the cast of characters we see in Arthur's extended family and the Knights of the Round Table. Effectively, we have an expandable universe like with Marvel or Star Wars that can decenter Arthur, and so we end up with stories about Tristan, Lancelot, and, as in the case here, with Gawain. The poem, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, was written in the late 14th century somewhere in the West Midlands, and so that's the area of England that stretches from Coventry to Wolverhampton and includes all of Birmingham. The poem is over 2,500 lines of complex alliteration, and it's considered one of the masterpieces of medieval English literature and one of the best of Arthurian literature in general. Mm -hmm. So the poem centers Gwen, and it really epitomizes spinoff literature. It barely features Arthur. It makes no mention at all of most of the famous aspects of Arthurian legend. So there's no Merlin, there's no Lancelot, there's no Excalibur, which is Arthur's sword. It's full of supernatural horror, sex, and violence. And it's a good poem. So we'll provide a link on our website to the Robbins Library where you can read the poem in full. Interestingly, with the film, it adapts Sir Gawain and the Green Knight to just the Green Knight. So it really changes perhaps the focus. Mm -hmm. But this character, the Green Knight, is depicted as kind of a giant he is portrayed in the film by Ralph Innocent, who is very recognisable for his incredibly deep voice. So he's got a very commanding presence, but then he's made up to look like a, a tree person. When he moves, it's the sound of like creaking and cracking branches. And he, towards the end of the film, is portrayed as almost one with this overgrowth. Sitting in the chapel, there's like vines and things almost over him. And he's very much part of the greenery there. But do you want to tell us a little bit more about the Green Knight and how this might relate to the so-called Green men. Yeah, so in the poem, he's greener mm -hmm. than in the movie. <laughs> he's described as clad all in green. And then it also describes him as dressed in green. And he has a beard, but that's described as thick and green as a bush. And in the film, he's much more bark-like. Mm. Because of him being plant-like and also really green, he is often associated with green men. I think if you ask most British people, they would say, oh, those are those face carvings on the sides of churches and buildings where you get a tree-like face, mm -hmm. often with leaves or branches growing out of it. Mm. But those were only given the designation green men in 1939. Previously to that, they'd been called foliate heads. So there isn't actually a link between the green knight and these plant-like faces that we now call green men. Hmm. But they go back much further than that, right? The carvings themselves, but we don't know that they were ever considered this green man creature mm. that has any relationship with the green knight from this poem. No idea. Mm -hmm. 
I think viewers will see a visual connection to Treebeard from The Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I found that was really interesting is that Tolkien was one of the most famous translators of the poem, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Mm. So it's probably an intentional connection going on there. Quite possibly, yeah. I was thinking about the name, the Green Knight. Mm -hmm. The film chops off Sir Gawain, as you mentioned, from the poem title. Yes. And I think there might be a little bit of a double entendre going on because in the poem, Gawain is already the legendary knight of the round table. And in the movie, we are seeing him at the start of his journey. He's not yet a legend. He is green. <laughs> so there might be a little play there that it's both the tree monster and also referring directly to Gwen himself. Yeah, quite possibly. Maybe we should talk a little bit about some of the changes between the source material and this. So while in both the original poem and the film Gawain is repeatedly tested, I think he comes across a lot worse in the film. Mm. He consistently does not uphold knightly virtues, let's say. So part of the chivalric code where there's all manner of things which you're meant to do, how you're meant to behave... Gawain in the film consistently is not getting things quite right. He really aspires to be a knight, but there's not really much demonstration that he understands what that means in his interactions. Yeah, I mean, I think that's more pronounced in the film than in the poem, but in the poem, he fails to uphold the chivalric code as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so the film differs from the poem in some key ways, which we can't cover all of it. The details of the journey differ. The fact that he is younger differs. One of the things I found was really interesting is how many of the characters from the poem from Arthurian legend that the film just doesn't name at all. So Arthur and Guinevere are just called king and queen. Merlin pops up, but he is never named. Gawain's mother is actually a combination of two of Arthur's sisters from Arthurian legend, Margos, who is actually Gawain's mother in the textual tradition itself, and Morgan Le Fay, who is another one of Arthur's sisters who is a witch. She practices magic. Mm -hmm. Those two characters seem to have been brought together in the mother who's just named Mother. Then we have an additional few characters added, including Essel, who is a sex worker who Gawain is in a relationship with at the start of the film. One last difference between the text and the movie that I want to mention, mm -hmm. because I think it's really interesting, is the inclusion of St. Winifred in the movie. Mm -hmm. So while Gawain is on his hero's journey and he's having these different experiences and encountering different people, one of the people that he encounters is St. Winifred. St. Winifred was a Welsh saint from the 7th century, but her story didn't start to become popular until the 12th century. According to the legend of St. Winifred, she was decapitated when she announced to the man that she was supposed to marry or a man who had been courting her that she was going to become a nun, and he became so enraged that he decapitated her in an act of misogynistic violence. Mm. And a healing spring was said to appear exactly where her head fell. So the inclusion of of this Welsh saint in a narrative that starts and ends with beheading. Mm -hmm. So it's a fascinating choice and a clever one on the part of the filmmaker to stitch the story of St. Winifred into the story of Gwen and the Green Knight. I think the film is, let's say, more challenging to understand than many other narratives because of the way it 
proceeds to tell the story and so much is unsaid mm. a lot of it's very symbolic and a lot of it's very ambiguous but the film is very much also doing its own thing yeah it's a creative retelling using this source material so one of the things i really like about the movie is how weird it is mm-hmm. <laughs> and how much it embraces the supernatural because i think that really captures the poem arthurian legend and just the medieval period I think we tend to forget in our reception of the medieval period, we've created a medieval period that's very sincere Mm -hmm. and serious and gray. And we get a lot of the gray in this movie. But what we lose in that being the way that we receive this period is we lose a lot of the color, like literally Mm. the color. It was a very colorful time period in clothing and interiors of buildings, exteriors of buildings and the tapestries and the artwork and their books and everything. Everything was colorful. But also in their thought, in their culture, in the way that they lived, Mm. this movie sits more in the way that we have received the medieval period in its visual aesthetics, but it's also super weird. Mm. So you mentioned in that discussion point the popular reception of the medieval world being quite different from historical reality. Mm -hmm. And I think we can get into a little bit of, again, touching on this idea of what film does how it creates shortcuts between its audience broad knowledge of something and it has to kind of use that in a sense Mm -hmm. so if we are putting on film the medieval period and peasants and things like that then there's going to be a lot of mud everywhere it's going to be pretty miserable there's going to be people walking around in chain mail Uh and there's this visual presentation of the past that is more to do with audience perceptions of the past than the past itself mm-hmm. and this also does that yeah totally this this film very much sits comfortably in that i'm less bothered by it because it's not trying to be historical mm-hmm. i'm more bothered by it when it is trying to be historical mm. there was an article written by sarah salee titled cinematic authenticity effects and medieval art a paradox and it's such a readable article it's really really good and in that she talks about the representation of the medieval period on film and what you're kind of saying here joe with the fact that you need to appeal to what the audience is expecting So when a filmmaker makes a movie, they want the audience to sit and suspend disbelief and really be able to enter the world on screen. The difficulty then is if there's a really popular notion for how a particular time period looked, what the setting was like, what the buildings were like, what the clothes were like, what it sounded like, and you produce something completely different, but not so different that you're sort of removing it from that time period and placing it in outer space or something like that. Mm -hmm. What you might end up with is what Sarah Lee terms an anti-authenticity effect. Mm -hmm. You might be far more historically accurate, but the audience receives it as inaccurate, and that causes them to have a sort of barrier to that suspension of disbelief. And this is a major thing plaguing Hmm. biblical drama. I'm just going to say, and we we can't get into this in this episode, but there isn't a single Jesus movie, or really, I can't think of a single biblical drama at all that gets its history correct, Mm -hmm. particularly if it's set in Mm -hmm. and around Israel. The setting, the music, the costuming, the everything. It is so far wrong. But if anybody tried to do it correctly, I think they would really struggle Mm. because we have such a enormous amount of visual imagery that tells us what the biblical mm-hmm. world should look like. We all expect, well, you know, bathrobes and tea towels. We expect the biblical world to look Bedouin. Yeah. And that's problematic. That's Orientalism. But that is what we expect. 
Yeah, with the medieval period, it's gray. And I think that's because that's how most of the ruins or even still standing buildings from the medieval period reach us gray. They're stone. Mm. And the reason that they're stone is because the paint has (laughs) worn away over time. You know, the tapestries aren't still hanging, like the rugs are gone, the people aren't in there. And that's the same with like Mm -hmm. Greco-Roman sculpture that's all white. And so we think the classical world was all white when actually the classical world was (laughs) horrifyingly garish, I would say. Colorful. (laughs) If you want to look at uh, polychromatic (laughs) reconstructions of ancient Roman statues in particular, or even the Parthenon friezes, you can find those quite easily. Uh, They've done one with the Arch of Titus as well. They have, And it is striking how colorful. I mean, there's some guesswork going on slightly in terms of like the brightness, I think, in some of them. Yeah, but they do quite a lot of like Mm. chemical analysis and spectrographic analysis. I think that's what it is, where they look like with a camera and they could actually look within the layers Mm -hmm. of the marble or the stone and find what pigments had originally been put on there and then they can replicate it. Oh, yeah. So the broad colors themselves, they absolutely Mm. know. Just actually the visual look of it might be slightly different as far as I was aware. But yeah, the reconstructions are very, very good and are quite striking when you're used to viewing the ancient world in marble. But I mean, this is what we get now. Like if you want to go visit a medieval castle Mm -hmm. in Britain, like you are going into a stone building that has been stripped of its color. So we get we get a gray medieval period and we get a very muddy medieval period as if mud is there all the time. Like, why do we think the medieval period was just rain (laughs) nonstop? What is that about people? Stop set designing everything with so much mud. Yeah. In this film, it's interesting using that language as well, because it is removed from historical time. One of the things I found so interesting was the scene towards the end of the film. So throughout the plot, Gawain is going through various trials. He's meeting other characters and sometimes mythical giants at one point and all these other kind of things. And he ends up arriving at this manor, this castle. And there's a lord and a lady there and an old woman who wears a blindfold. The lady is played by the same actor as plays Essel. So there's something slightly weird going on there for Gawain. Then the lady also makes advances on Gawain while the lord is out. And there's more games going on at this point. But this part of the film, the set they're on and the clothes they're wearing look so modern It must be a conscious choice, and I don't know if it's also to do with the filming technique, but suddenly it just looks like people are wearing essentially very, very modern versions of their previous medieval robes and tunics and all these other kind of things. There's something just so striking about that, and then you see this really stylized past very clearly there. Yeah, so the building that is this big estate this lord and lady live in, when we were watching, I turned to my husband and I was like, I think this is Victorian Gothic. Mm. And I looked it up after to see the filming location. So it was filmed in Charleville Castle in Tullamore, County Offaly. Offaly? Offaly. Offaly, Ireland. And it is an early Victorian hmm. neo-Gothic building. I was really proud of myself. <laughs> Nicely done. Yeah. <laughs> a little pat on the back Five for points. getting that correctly. And I would imagine the costumes are designed to evoke that setting. Hmm. So the reason that you're feeling a sort of 
more of a modernity to them, but while still being medieval, like mm. the blue dress that the lady wears has split hanging sleeves, which is a really classic feature of 15th century medieval dress. And so that's very much there in her costume. So it has these aspects that really are pulling details from different medieval, late medieval periods, mm. but reimagining them in a more modern sort of way. I think it fits really nicely with an early 19th century building. Mm. There is a scholar, Meg Twycross, who, similar to Sarah Salee commenting on how we receive the medieval period, Meg Twycross has said that what we tend to get is a never-never period. Mm -hmm. So when we imagine the medieval period in film, on TV, whatever, we are really very not specific. We tend to get specific when we get to Shakespeare, Elizabeth, we're good at replicating those particular times, but earlier than that, we're not great at it. We just sort of generically mush together a bunch of stuff from like uh, centuries. Mm -hmm. I think, again, this is one of the things that works in this film because we are removing it from any particular historical location. Mm. So having this kind of never-never period for a mythical folkloric figure on a mythical hero's quest works yeah, really works. My feeling is that it's probably intentionally doing a lot of this messing as well, because everything else about the story is, I don't know if dreamlike is quite the right description. I think that is. I think it is dreamlike. You experience the film in a different way to how you might just watch other kinds of films. Lots of things about the production are pulling together to create this experience where you if, like myself, you don't really know anything about the story of Gawain and the Green Knight, then you might be quite confused at where the story's going. And I didn't get the sense of being able to predict what was going to happen from scene to scene or even really where the film was going to end up finally. Yeah, you kind of don't really know what exactly is going on. Like, is this real? Is this imagined? Is this pretend? And mm. you had mentioned, Joe, in our sort of pre-chat that the movie really messes with time. Mm. And I think in some places really very strongly. So most of the film, we are following Gawain as he is traveling. It's supposed to be a five-day journey, a six-day journey. Six days. So it's supposed to be the six-day journey for him to get to the Green Church where he has to meet the Green Knight the following Christmas from when the original challenge was issued. Along the journey, there's like little vignettes. And there's one where he's mugged. He's set upon by... Bandits. Bandits. Yeah. But because you think of him as a knight, you kind of expect he's going to like swashbuckle his way out of it. Yeah, I, I thought that he would, you know, he'd be able to fight Just them like, and nothing. Like really quickly be done with yeah. them. But then to re-emphasize his greenness, mm -hmm. they tie him up, they steal his stuff. And we see him lying on the ground in front of a tree and the camera pans round. A complete 360 degree pan. Complete 360. And the natural environment has shifted to indicate the passing of time, as I'm sure all of our listeners are familiar with from many films and mm -hmm. TV shows that do this. And when it gets back to Gwen, it's just his skeleton. Mm. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> like because the way it like yeah. it jumps at you, it's like a jump scare. You also don't know at that point in the film as well, was like was that it for Gawain like what <laughs> and you, mm -hmm. you really don't know what is gonna happen like oh my god he's dead mm. and then the camera pans around again a full 360 and returns to him as is yeah and he 
gets up and he gets himself out of his predicament and carries on with his journey. And so you're left to wonder, like, did he die? And now we're seeing the legendary Gwen be born and the the rest of the journey is just myth? Mm -hmm. Or did he imagine, like, if I don't do anything, I'm going to die, so I better get up and do something. And so we're seeing his imagination. I think it's really hard to know. Yeah. So lots and lots of different time things are very ambiguous throughout the film, but there's the other scene at the end, which effectively does something very similar over a much longer period. So when Gawain eventually makes his way to the chapel, meets the Green Knight, he has been given, among many other things, a sash. This sash has a magical talisman in it, and the sash is meant to prevent any harm from coming to him. So he's got this sash on, and... He's flinched from the Green Knight and his axe that he's going to repay this blow. And he ends up having a breakdown like when he's confronting his own mortality. Mm. Deb Patel is doing a wonderful job and gets up and runs out the chapel, apologizing, says he can't do it and flees back. And then you have this passage over years of him back from his quest. He's made a knight. He becomes king, he has children, he marries, involved in wars, and eventually, clearly, things are not so well in Gawain's kingdom, and his castle doors have been smashed down, people fleeing his side. They have the same round-the-room 360 pan, and you hear the doors crash open. He takes off his sash that he's worn the whole time, and his head drops off. So this cut was given to him anyway. And at that moment, we snap back and we're back in the Green Chapel. And again, it's like, has he had a vision of his future? If he makes this choice, did that happen? And now it's like he's able to face death. Now he knows like, okay, well, I I have lived. It's very, very ambiguous. The film visually plays to this concept. Excitingly so. Yeah. It reminded me of The Last Temptation of Christ, actually, Mm. especially this final stretch where we get this future vision. Yeah. If you haven't listened to our Last Temptation of Christ episode with Matt Page, definitely go and check that out. So anyway, at the end of The Last Temptation, Jesus is on the cross and an angel comes and tells him that he has fulfilled his purpose. He can come down from the cross and he does. And we see him live a life with love and family and loss and grief, just like we see with Gwen. And finally, he's an old man and he's dying and Judas comes to him and he tells him that he got it all wrong. Mm. He was meant to die on the cross. And as this scene is happening, we see the sack of Jerusalem in 70 CE playing out in the background. And the city is on fire and it's crumbling. And this, again, is like Gawain sitting on his throne Mm. while Camelot crumbles around him to the sounds of a sieging army. So both men avoided their sacrificial acts. And this is their moment of realization. Mm -hmm. In The Last Temptation, we snap back to the cross and Jesus dies there as he's meant to. Mm. And in The Green Knight, we snap back to the church. So it's ambiguous as to whether it's a vision or not in either film. Mm. But with The Last Temptation, I've seen it a bunch of times and I've always just been like, well, clearly, clearly it's just a vision. Like it's so obviously just a vision. But The Green Knight, it plays with time and perspective so much that it's less clear to me. That it's obviously just a vision. So now it's making (laughs) me think. Have to rethink 
Last Temptation. Yes. So it's making me rethink The Last Temptation as well. Mm -hmm. I was just going to do some reading about this movie, and I came across an article on Vox by Alyssa Wilkinson. She makes the same connection with The Last Temptation of Christ. Yeah, it just the parallel felt so strong to me. And then when I saw that this other person, Alyssa Wilkinson, found the same parallel, I was a little bit like, oh, man, I wasn't the only one to... <laughs> Someone's beat you to the punch in that one. Yeah, clearly they published a whole article about it. Mm. I really liked reading through her take. Mm. And then it made me think again about the first shot that we get of Gwen, mm -hmm. And I think this really obviously establishes him as like, he's going to be the chosen one of the story. Essel chucks a bucket of water on him to wake him up and says, Christ is born. And then you see his face. <laughs> So if Gwen is a Christ figure in the story, then he is a Christ figure in the model of The Last Temptation. One who fails and doubts and is really unsure of himself. Mm -hmm. But this parallel becomes less clear to me at the end. So Jesus obviously corrects his action and he becomes Christ, the salvific figure. But what about Gwen? And here I really appreciated Alyssa Wilkinson's reasoning. Mm -hmm. She says that both become who they are meant to be. For Gwen, he learns to embody this chivalric ideal and maintain his honor, even if that means his death. She writes... One of them saves mankind, the other saves his own soul. And I thought that was such a great way of looking at it. Mm. So it wouldn't be gods and movie makers if we didn't talk a bit about religion. So yeah. <laughs> we're going to get into that a little bit. The Green Knight is explicitly placed in a Christian setting. So it opens and closes on Christmas Day, or at least the Christmas period. The New Year is also played with it, but essentially it's Yuletide. Christmas is just very, very important as a setting. Mm -hmm. But it's also full of magic. So Gawain's mother participates in a spell that seems to summon the Green Knight to begin with. She gives him this protective amulet in the sash that we've mentioned the green knight survives his beheading and even he himself is some kind of a lot of people seem to associate the green man with pre-christian ideas of nature and rebirth and things like that so potentially that's there and then there are other things like the ghosts perhaps of saint winifred the green church is a church ruin yeah there's just all these blended elements so, Katie, can you explain then how magic, as we might understand it, functioned in, let's say, the medieval world? We'll entertain that this Arthur story is kind of placed in that mode, even if, as the aforementioned caveats about it not being there. Uh, yeah, so I think that we tend to have this idea of magic and religion as being kind of diametrically opposed to each other. Mm. If we look at something like the rampant banning of Harry Potter books in a lot of places in America in the early 2000s, which was so often just a response to the idea that the books were anti-Christian because they were promoting magic and witchcraft. Mm -hmm. But Arthurian legend gives us a really nice opportunity to unsettle that kind of idea. What we see in a lot of Arthurian legend is this dichotomy between two types of magic. There is an acceptable magic that's seen as natural, mm -hmm. and then there is an unnatural, unacceptable magic that's seen as demonic and coming from a place of evil. And that dichotomy is possibly best demonstrated through Merlin and Morgan Le Fay. So Merlin is doing the acceptable natural magic. Morgan Le Fay, who is Arthur's stepsister, is doing the unacceptable magic. Mm -hmm. Jeff 
Jeffrey of Monmouth really intentionally positions Merlin from within the context of Christianity to demonstrate the acceptability of his magic. Mm -hmm. It's in Jeffrey's portrait of Merlin that we find out his backstory, that his mother was a nun, Hmm. that his father was a fallen angel of sorts. And Jeffrey also gives Merlin a prophetic ability. Mm -hmm. And it's Merlin who says that Arthur will return one day. So we get this really clear division between two types of magic. Mm. Within that division, we have this sense that there is acceptable magic, that we don't have all magic as being in opposition to Christianity, but we have magic that is integrated into Christianity. And I think that makes a lot more sense for the role that magic has played through much of human history as both being integrated into religious and ritual traditions, as well as types of magic or forms of magic that are seen in opposition. What we might have in the modern world when we have a conception of magic and religion as two distinct things whose domains don't really cross and religion here being in like a Christian normative sense. Mm -hmm. We have a similar rhetorical thing that goes on with the language of religion versus cult, whereas from, let's say, an anthropological perspective, it's people doing very, very similar things, perhaps on different levels. But the way that the term cult is employed is a rhetorical move in many, many cases that does describe harmful practices and groups. But ultimately, it's really about putting something at the margins or having something as somehow unofficial. And religion is somehow official and respected. So there's a rhetorical distinction going on. Mm -hmm. And I think magic functions in the same way in modern discussion. So you might have magic versus religion or magic versus miracles and ultimately these are often talking about essentially the same thing it's just the question of what is acceptable Mm -hmm. and what isn't and we see that in this movie so this movie accepts magic it accepts the supernatural it accepts things that seem to come from like a pre-christian world None of the characters push back against any of that. There's no surprise at any of it. Nobody encounters the Green Knight and goes, what in the world is this tree type man? How could anything like this exist? Mm -hmm. It's shocking to them. The challenge is shocking, but there's no questioning that something like that can exist in the world Mm. alongside Gawain encountering a saint as he does Mm -hmm. during his journey. And talking foxes and giants and all sorts of things. Right, like all these things exist. And then at the same time, we have Gawain in an early scene, he's in a pub and some other person in the pub just says to him, your mother is a witch or Mm, something like that. Even as the film is accepting all of these things and saying, yeah, yeah, this all exists in this world together. Mm -hmm. There is still a pejorative sense to magic, to witchcraft. Mm. And I think both of those things are correct for Arthurian legend and what we see happening in texts that were written in the medieval period. There is an acceptance of the supernatural, an acceptance of magic, and also a disparaging of magic. The use of the word magic in which pejoratively live alongside some senses of magic being considered natural and acceptable. Yeah. In the Pentateuch, for instance, and in the New Testament, you get a distrust of certain types of practitioners of particular skills, let's say. So they would be called necromancers and witches and wizards in the Hebrew Bible. And you also get the figure of Simon Magus in Acts. But there isn't really a claim about their efficacy. They work... It's more a question of what is authorized and what isn't. And they are often on the outside of 
authorized forms of religious expression. So the really, really interesting case would be something like the so-called Witch of Endor, although much more properly we should think of her as a medium. This character in the book of First Samuel is consulted by the king Saul shortly after the death of Samuel. And Samuel before this time had functioned as essentially a conduit for Saul to understand what the will of God was, what was going to happen in the future, general guidance, this kind of stuff. After his death, Saul goes to this medium, this necromancer, this witch, and uses her skills to consult the spirit or the ghost of Samuel. So the efficacy is exactly there, but it's just something that isn't authorised. So they essentially are doing the same thing. They're both finding out about what's going to happen. In this particular example, it's about the outcome of a battle, but uh, one is accepted and the other isn't. Yeah, I think you're completely right here with this idea of authorized, that there is authorized magic and there is unauthorized magic. And simply because something is unauthorized, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's evil, but it does mean that it's outside the bounds of acceptability. I think Carlo Ginsberg, who wrote The Cheese and the Worms in 1976, is really good on this thinking about religion and magic. Mm -hmm. And he writes that the difference between magic and miracle or a spell and a prayer really comes down to what we're getting at here, which is somebody's point of view. Mm -hmm. So superstition, magic spells, these are terms that are used to describe somebody else's practice and beliefs as a way of denigrating it as less than Mm -hmm. and not one's own. Yeah, what someone would call magic was often just within the confines of religious orthodoxy or regular practice or maybe even the specialist practice. So we have lots of examples of things like incantation bowls where incantations are written on these bowls and they ward off evil spirits or you have charms or amulets or all manner of things. And the last one I will mention kind of ties us nicely back into the Green Knight, and that is the Seal of Solomon. Mm. In, I think, in the medieval period, the tradition at least was first documented. It might have gone back much earlier because Solomon, the third king of Israel, is a wise man, like very rich, but then is also very powerful. And this later tradition emerges that he had this kind of capability to banish demons and do all these other kind of things and had a ring which was essentially this magical item that he could use and the seal of Solomon is this five-pointed star that we see throughout the Green Knight because Gawain has it on his shield. I think the king wears a medallion with it on. He does. And this five-pointed star stands in for perhaps the Seal of Solomon, but also represents the five wounds of Christ. It represents the five knightly virtues. It represents Gawain's five senses. And it it melds all of these things in together in this one very intensely explicit Christian symbol, but then is also this like potentially wards off demons and things like that as well. Yeah, so in this one symbol is this intense Christian image, but layered into that also is magic and spells, and it's all bound together. And for Gwen, it acts as a protective amulet until it gets broken. Oh, yeah, it gets broken. Poor Gwen. <laughs> like everything else he has, it all just gets broken and stuff. Well, I think we should probably come to the last point of discussion and really tie together this season. <laughs> 
is Gawain chosen? Yes. Mm-hmm. The idea that he is our chosen figure, I think, is really clearly indicated at the start of the film, as I said before, when Essel throws water on him and says, Christ is born. Mm-hmm. But then when the Green Knight walks into Camelot and he faces Arthur at the round table, which is more like a horseshoe in this. Yeah. That's an aside. <laughs> but uh, he issues the challenge and Gawain steps up to take that challenge. And so in that sense, he's like Neo. He is a chosen one who chooses to be chosen to quote King Ho in our Matrix episode. But he is also supported in that by Arthur, who hands him Excalibur. And that's a big deal. Yeah. And so there is this moment of like, I too choose you. So before we go, we're each going to pitch a pairing. So Katie, how about you start? You know the rules. What's your pairing? So I'm actually going to go with a walk up Glastonbury Tor. Glastonbury Tor is a hill in Glastonbury. It's in the part of the world that if Arthur had existed, that is where he would have been. And at the top of Glastonbury Tor is St. Michael's Tower. I think it's a 13th century tower. It was built in the place of a much older wooden church. And it is believed that Glastonbury Tor is Avalon. When the cloud line comes low and things are a bit rainy and misty, as they tend to be in England sometimes, (laughs) the top of Glastonbury Tor can peek out of the clouds and it looks like this sort of island sitting in the mist. It's a beautiful walk. It's very nature-y, so I think it really fits with the Green Knight. So I'm going to add it to our list of pairings from this season where people are meant to take trips places. Yeah. <laughs> go go for journeys places. So here is a journey. Mm. Go to Glastonbury. Walk up Glastonbury tour. It's beautiful. Very good. Maybe we should do a season on travel and journeys. <laughs> yeah, it's a good idea. <laughs> okay, Joe. So what about you? What's your pairing? If people want to get a nice, long and very full King Arthur film, then Excalibur 1981, directed by John Borman, is probably the place to go. It is quite a film. Um, Very, very over the top in many ways. There's some really interesting costume design, some fantastic sets, a bunch of amazing actors uh, delivering some excellent performances. I would particularly draw audiences' attention to the performance of Nicole Williamson, who plays Merlin, who gives a mesmerizing performance because he is going from zero to 100 in seconds opposite other actors. Sometimes he's very low-key, sometimes he's very over the top. It is just here, there and everywhere and it is so compelling and quite funny to watch, to be honest, on many times. So Excalibur 1981, that is my pairing. Nice. And we said at the start of the episode that we were going to have a little chat at the end about what's coming up on Gods and Movie Makers. In between seasons, our listeners should stay tuned for our pedagogy segments that we recorded with our guests during season one. Mm -hmm. So at the end of every episode, our guests stayed on for a short extra chat where we talked about teaching and research and using films in the classroom, in public education spaces. So those are some really, I think, really interesting extra bits and really informative Mm. so we will be releasing each of those Mm -hmm. and what else do we have coming up 
So we also would like to do some holiday tie-ins. So various holidays to be determined and films to be determined. We are also soliciting any suggestions of holidays, films and possibly guests. And they will be coming intermittently, hopefully on time with holiday times. So we might have to give some advance notice for particular ones we want to cover. But yeah. And as for our next season, we are yet undecided on what our theme should be. And I think we are a little bit torn between hubris and revenge. Mm -hmm. If you have an opinion, listener at home, (laughs) and you would prefer a season on either hubris or or revenge, hit us up at GodMovPod on our Twitter and let us know what you think. Yeah, and would also appreciate any other things that you think would fit well in those discussions, Mm -hmm. or even suggestions for guests who we could talk to about some of their research and expertise which relate to those particular films or topics. So any film that you think would go really well in a hubris theme or a revenge theme or any guest, that would be great to talk about either of those themes. We will take the suggestions. Um, And I think that's it. Do our thinking for us. Yes. (laughs) Do our planning for us. (laughs) Uh, I think we're good, Joe. I think that's a wrap on season one. That's it. We're good. Wow. Season one. That's our show today, and that's our season. Gods and Movie Makers is researched and produced by us, Joe Scales and Katie Turner, and supported by listeners like you. Our music is by Star the Kid. As always, you can follow us at GodMobPod on Twitter and Instagram. And if you enjoyed what you've heard today, head on over to our website, godsandmoviemakers.com, where you can donate to us or subscribe for additional content. Thanks for listening.